Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern, postmodern, and post-postmodern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with my friend Judson Brewer. Judson Brewer is an MD, PhD, researcher, and thought leader in the field of habit change and the, quote, science of self-mastery. Having combined nearly 20 years of experience with mindfulness training and his scientific research, a psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addictions, Brewer has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments. He's also studied the underlying neural mechanisms of mindfulness using standard and real-time fMRI. His work has been funded by the National Institutes of Health, the American Heart Association, the Fetzer Trust, and others. So just to give a little more background to our talk and contextualize, especially the first portion of this program, about four years ago, I drove to Judd's lab in central Massachusetts at the UMass Medical School Center for Mindfulness, which is in Shrewsbury. There, Judd and several of his grad students packed my head into this cap covered with wires and hooked me up to his EEG machine that monitors the relative activation or deactivation of the center of the brain known as the posterior cingulate cortex or PCC. Now this device is the outcome of his fMRI research on the brain taken to the next level where he actually brought in signal processing experts and physicists to help him translate what he had seen of brain activity in the fMRI to a reliable EEG signal. He then had me meditate with a lot of instruction, meditate now, stop meditating now, do this meditation, do that meditation, over a period of many hours. And it was a fascinating experience and I really learned a lot in doing it. And so we are discussing that device in the early part of this episode. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call The Craving Mind. Great, Judd. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. So I've been meaning to talk to you about this in public for a long time. You know, I wrote an article about your fabulous brain biofeedback machine. So let's begin by talking about that a little bit. You think that you have found the neurological signature of enlightenment. (laughs) I would say we're one baby step closer to identifying things related to enlightenment. That's about all I can say, but I love that you're being a provocateur. Well, tell me what you've actually found. Without going into the full backstory, we started by just really trying to understand what the neurobiological mechanisms were that were related to meditation. And we even started this by looking for commonalities because we figured, you know, it's not going to be one practice that leads to enlightenment. I think, you know, that's why there are many traditions and many different practices. It's really about personalizing practice such that one can find their own groove. 
So we were looking for commonalities and we started with three different practices, you know, standard breath awareness, loving kindness and choiceless awareness, which in the Theravadan traditions about just resting in awareness of whatever arises in one's consciousness and one's awareness. And we found that there was a network of brain regions called the default mode network that was surprisingly not activated, but actually deactivated and experienced compared to novice meditators. And this fit pretty nicely with the previous cognitive neuroscience literature. And I want to pause there and emphasize that because I think it's really helpful to build on science and look to see how um, our theories are lining up with you know theories in the broader realms in the broader industry and if they're not lining up with the rest of science i think that's worth pausing and asking why aren't these lining up language is one thing concept is another and then yet another is empirical data so our data were lining up pretty nicely with what was found in the previous literature for example Uh, One brain region in particular called the posterior cingulate cortex gets activated when somebody's daydreaming, basically. Well, that's very much in line with what meditation trains people not to do. Now, isn't the posterior cingulate cortex a major node in the default mode network? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the hubs. It kind of links the prefrontal cortex to memory regions such as the hippocampus, etc., And when you look this thing up, the posterior cingulate cortex, we'll just call it PCC. As a layperson, when I look it up on, let's say, Wikipedia, it sounds like it does a whole bunch of different stuff. The list is large. This is where it gets really interesting. So yes, the list is extremely large. It gets activated when we're daydreaming, when we're thinking about ourselves, when we're imagining the past and future, when we're feeling guilty, uh, when we're ruminating, when we're anxious or depressed, and of course, in my favorite, when we're having a craving. So a couple of years ago, one of my collaborators at MIT, uh, Sue Whitfield, Gabrielle, and I looked at this and we said, you know, let's see if we can apply Occam's razor to this, where we can really find, um, you know, is there some parsimonious explanation that would tie all of these seemingly disparate things together? And in fact, um, the best we could come up with our working hypothesis, which still, you know, four years later is still our working hypothesis, was that this brain region got activated when we're getting caught up in our experience or when we're getting in our own way. So that fits with rumination, when we're getting caught up in rumination, when we're getting caught up in craving, and even when we're getting caught up in our own self-referential stories, uh, thinking about ourselves. So that seems to be one logical explanation for how the PCC ties all these things together, and also importantly, how meditation fits in. Is this craving that you're describing in the PCC the same craving that the Buddha is describing when he uses the term tanha? Funny you ask that. There's a study by Hugh Garavan, I think back in 2001, where he found that this brain region gets activated during physiologic thirst. Hmm. Wait, you mean when you're thirsty? When you're thirsty, yes. So what does Tanha mean? Uh, like literally thirsty in Pali. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> what does it have to do with meditation? Well, uh, let's go back to thirst. <laughs> when we're thirsty, whether it's drugs or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, uh, we can get caught up in that thirst and we start feeding it. We get attached to it. And meditation, of course, as many people know, 
it helps us really target that and stop fueling those fires or stop feeding that cycle of often described as samsara of endless wandering. Okay, so you found this brain region, the PCC, that seems to be either the hub or a major part of the brain that is activated when someone is craving something. Where do we go from there? Well, from there, we had a place to start. And first, we wanted to line it up with the theories, which it seemed to do, as we just talked about. And then the next step was to really dive in, because a lot of these fMRI studies use many individuals, and they average long periods of time where people are partaking in a particular tasks, for example, meditation. So we wanted to see if we could actually isolate this on a more second-by-second basis, where we could kind of line up their subjective experience with brain activity. And that's kind of the holy grail in neuroscience. There's this huge chasm between what's described as first-person science, subjective descriptions and subjective experience, and third-person, which is objective you know, data such as brain activity. So one of my colleagues at Yale, Xenius Papademetris, had developed this protocol where we could actually give people feedback in real time from their brains in our fMRI scanner. And so it opened up the possibility of being able to link this subjective experience with the brain activity. So that was our next step, was to ask the question, okay, here's a brain region, seems to be implicated in getting caught up. Is it actually, you know, on a moment-by-moment basis, does it get deactivated during meditation as our previous studies had shown on a group level? Can we see this on an individual level? That's when it gets really interesting. Now, when you say fMRI machine, this is like a 10-ton magnet or something, right? This is a giant, inconvenient, hulking device. Yes, it requires things like liquid helium to keep it cold. We've all got that in the fridge. (laughs) When you brought people into this fMRI, which is like, if I'm not mistaken, sort of like stuffing them in a tube. Yeah, that's a pretty good description. Doesn't it like shake really loud or something? It does make a loud noise. So we give people both earplugs and then ear protection on top of their earplugs. Wow. So it's really loud. They're stuck in a tube. And I'm smiling because it's interesting. I had to pilot out all of our studies. And it turns out when you get in an fMRI machine and you get tucked in, it's like you're tucked in as a kid when you're going to bed. They give you a blanket and they give you, you know, all this stuff. And you've got double ear protection on. You hear this rhythmic you know, that's actually not that loud. And because it's rhythmic, it's actually pretty easy to meditate in a scanner. And we've had a number of our expert meditators come in and say, wow, you know, I should try meditating lying down more. That was really great. (laughs) I assume uh, people with claustrophobia do not have that reaction. Not so much. Okay. So what happened when you brought the folks in there? So we brought them in and we basically showed them a graph of their brain activity while they were meditating. And the graph was a simple bar graph where it would go up and show red bars if their posterior cingulate was activating and it would show go down and show blue bars below the baseline if they were deactivating that brain region. So first we replicated our previous data in our previous studies. We found that on average experienced meditators decreased PCC activity. But the part that just blew my mind was the level of precision that we could get on a momentary basis. So in moment by moment, so they would come in, we would do one to three minute runs because they couldn't actually remember, you know, much beyond that. 
And then at the end of the run, we'd ask them to go back and just say, okay, what happened on that part of the graph? What happened on that part? What happened on that part? And they could get in there and say, okay, this is where I was getting caught up and this is where I was letting go and this and this and this. And so the experienced meditators were really, they actually brought out these data in a way we use this method called grounded theory, where we could objectively take all of their subjective descriptions and then in a blinded manner, line it up with brain activity. And we found that indeed the posterior cingulate was activating when people are not just when they're distracted, but when they're getting caught up in distraction or not just in particular when they're trying to do something. So this was a striking result for us was some people would see the graph it would go up and go red and they go, oh no, my brain's getting activated. And then they would try, literally they describe this as trying to meditate harder. And of course it jacked that red up even higher. Uh, and others, uh, they would find, oh, if I just, I noticed some thoughts come up, I didn't, you know, I just kind of let them go by. And they would notice that the thing would just drop and stay pretty low. And some others were even noticing, like the less one person described specifically, I remember them saying, the less I tried to do anything, the bluer it went. So they were noticing truly what getting out of your own way feels like, or in the immortal words of Yoda, uh, (laughs) do or do not, there is no try. I think that's really at the heart of meditation. So just for our non-neuroscientist listeners, quick question. The PCC, this is, there's just one of these, right? It's not like one of these bilateral brain structures. It's midline, yes. Yeah. And the other thing is, this is not digital, correct? It's not just that it's on or off. It can be more on or more off, like on a fader. Absolutely. It is definitely continuous as compared to binary. Maybe this is a level of detail that you haven't gotten into, but I'm curious, is it a uniform scale? Like if it's 20% off, is that twice as off as 10%? Is it logarithmic? Like how much does it relate to the sense of trying or self? That's a great question. So with fMRI, one of the things to know is that all this activity is relative. So it's relative to a baseline. And it's not just a baseline for the day or for the week. It's actually the baseline for that run. So we take a baseline and then we look to see relative increases or relative decreases. You know, logarithmic versus linear versus others doesn't apply as much as the direction that it's going in and the trend in that run. That seems to be where people are actually learning quite a bit. Now, did you toss any people in there who'd never meditated before? We did. So we ran control subjects for all of our experiments where folks had never meditated before. We taught them the practices that morning, and then they would get in the scanner and try to do them. What'd you find? (laughs) They were actually more interesting than the experienced meditators in many ways. And in several instances, we found novice meditators who basically, after nine minutes, literally three runs of three-minute each of feedback, they were literally flipping their brain activity from like all red to all blue. And they were coming out of there like saying, wow, that was amazing. (laughs) So they were learning things like what it feels like to get in their own way. In particular, I can remember one who described the difference between thinking about his breath versus feeling it physically. Right. As a meditation teacher, I see this all the time in people's reports where at first 
they're thinking about the feeling of breathing. And then there's this switch where they're like, oh, wait, now I'm actually feeling the feeling of breathing. That's it. And boy, wouldn't it be great if you could pop their head open and say, ah, you're thinking about your breath again. (laughs) Well, we can kind of do that in a non-invasive way. How deep into the red, how deep into the no craving, no thought, out of their own way did these novice subjects go? I wouldn't say it was on the realm of Rigpa or anything, but I think they want a big taste of a relative sense of what it feels like to let go. You know, I think of Atlas, you know, and shrugging. And when Atlas shrugs for the first time and realizes how heavy a weight he'd been carrying around, I imagine it's just quite a relief. That's what their faces looked like when they got out of the scanner and their smiles were ear to ear. You know, it's like they had just tasted what it feels like to shrug off a heavy weight. Obviously, this looks like a really powerful way to point out a flow state or a non-self-referential state on the way towards some kind of no-self state to beginners. That only takes a few minutes, right? Yes. And it's funny that you mentioned flow because one of our experienced meditators spontaneously reported getting into flow and we watched her PCC activity take a nosedive. So we'd kind of captured that on films. And I do think of flow, some people describe it in binary terms. And I think certainly when people look back on experiences of flow, it's hard to determine, you know, if they just popped into a really solid flow moment or if they'd kind of wound their way into it. I think of it more on a continuous spectrum where we can be on the far end of the spectrum where we're so deep in it. We have no idea who we are, where we are, and there's just yumminess happening, you know, each moment. But I think any moment we can be moving in that direction. And that's where the caught up versus not caught up distinction comes in. I think of it concretely as when we get contracted versus we're expanding. You know, contraction comes from fear. It comes from anger. It comes from generally anything self-referential, right? Because we're protecting ourselves. We're delineating this boundary between ourself and the rest of the world. Well, if you expand that, whether it's through loving kindness or compassion or just paying attention to what's happening, if you take that expansion to infinity, you can't find that boundary between yourself and the rest of the universe. And that's what I would say fits very nicely with Csikszentmihalyi's definition of flow. Okay, so what did you learn in this fMRI that you could apply to your own practice? Well, it was really fun to be able to pilot this myself because you know, it's cost like a thousand bucks anytime we put somebody in the scanner. So it was a real privilege to be able to kind of test out some of my own practices to see what they were like. And one particular time I remember doing loving kindness and noticing, like I was just doing it for the people in the control room at first, the folks in my lab and our technician. And then it just kind of took a life of its own and just took off, you know, where it just went. And at that moment, my PCC activity took a nosedive. So it was nice to see some of that lining up. I'd been doing some absorption, concentration practices, jhana type stuff. And those seemed to line up pretty nicely where, you know, you could have PCC activity take a nosedive with a very deep concentration. And so it was nice to get a confirmation of the practices that I was doing. I think of it as a way to calibrate my own body system, right? It's not like I'm going to walk around with an fMRI machine all the time and say, oh, let me just jump in there and see how my PCC is doing. I think this really is where it gets pragmatic is if we can calibrate the system using feedback, for example, and we can really get a clear sense, very nuanced sense of what contraction versus expansion feels like. 
that system can then calibrate something that we can walk around with all the time, uh, our body. And we can just draw on our own experience from moment to moment. Oh, am I contracting or am I expanding? So in a way, it gives you an enhanced sense or maybe another viewpoint on the basics of letting go, getting out of your own way, opening up and concentrating. Yeah, very much. I think of it as a a way to calibrate the scale. You know, if you want to weigh something accurately, you have to make sure it starts at zero. And I think in this sense, it's a dual scale. We can see both directions if we're getting contracted or if we're expanding. And both of those give us a lot of really useful information. One thing that I find both interesting and perhaps slightly puzzling about Csikszentmihalyi's research, which I love, is that he seems to be simply describing high concentration, getting very involved in a task. And the results of becoming very highly concentrated are diminishment of the sense of self and eventually high no-self state. And yet you seem to be describing something more nuanced than simply high concentration. High concentration certainly can fit into this. When one is concentrated, then one generally isn't doing self-referential things. And with high concentration, if it's not forced, then it feels very open or you can't even detect where one is because one is not concentrated on oneself. So I think concentration certainly fits within that realm. Yet it is very interesting what you point out. And I don't know Csikszentmihalyi personally, so I can only base this on what I understand of his work. The being lost in a task is often what he describes. And he often uses sports or other types of things where one can be fully immersed in that activity. Now, when one is fully immersed in that activity, the concentration can either be forced or not forced, where it's just a natural one is drawn in. And one of the clues that I got from his work that was really interesting was he describes that it's kind of like this Goldilocks phenomenon. The task can't be too easy and the task can't be too hard. It's got to be just right. And if it's too easy, our minds tend to wander. And so we're going to daydream and we're going to fall out of flow. If it's too hard, we're going to get frustrated and fall out of flow. Both the too easy, we get caught up or contracted in self-reference. And when it's too hard, we get caught up or contracted in frustration, which is also self-reference. So I think that Goldilocks piece there suggests that it's not necessarily the task itself, but what the task helps us do, which is helps us get out of our own way. But now shoot me down. That's just my interpretation. Well, it makes sense to me. If we presume that in a normal task, at a normal level of concentration, a person's mind is, let's say, I'm just making this pseudo math up, 50% involved in the task and 50% involved in self-referential stuff. And we'll just take that as a normal situation. In high concentration, there's a possibility of having 99 or 100% of attention on the task and 0% on self-referential material. But if you were really forcing the concentration and trying really too hard, just like all the meditation masters have always said, that would end up causing a lot of attention to be going towards self-referential material. So at a certain point, the effort has to be let go of if you want to get to the higher realms of concentration on the external object. Yeah. And I would say that certain point is right at the beginning. (laughs) 
I don't think force is necessary, which might sound controversial, and I'm happy for it to be. But I have found, you know, you can actually look at this, and it goes back to the neurobiology of how our brains learn. You know, for example, the seven factors of awakening in Theravada Buddhism. The first one is awareness or mindfulness. I think of it as rubbing two sticks together. So you bring the second factor together with the first which is translated as interest or curiosity. And you start creating that friction where the third virya or courageous energy naturally arises. And only five steps or six steps later, and the sixth factor of awakening is concentration. So if you look at those suttas, like the Anapanasati Sutta, it actually describes this in a linear progression or unfolding where concentration naturally arises out of the conditions that precede it. And none of those conditions include the word force. <laughs> yeah. In fact, as soon as you say curiosity, you get a very different feeling, a different flavor for the kind of concentration it's asking for. Yes. And I think that's where the money is. And it also, if you think of a reward-based learning perspective, it also starts to line up very, very nicely with what we understand about how the mind learns, both habits that might not be as helpful, but also really good habits like being kind to each other. Interesting. I'm curious, you said you had three different kinds of meditations that you were doing in the fMRI. So what did you find there? We looked more for commonalities. So to be honest, we found this result with these commonalities. We moved into the neurofeedback to do these neurophenomenologic experiments that lined up. And then we just kept moving into clinical studies where we started giving people neurofeedback there. So we haven't spent a lot of time looking at differences. We've certainly we've published a paper on loving kindness itself. If you just look at it alone, you see the posterior cingulate getting deactivated, and it's a very selfless practice. So that lines up. But we haven't really looked at the differences between those three as much as just taken this thread of commonality in the PCC and gone with that. There's been so much for us to do there. We haven't had time to go back and look at anything else. So I'm curious if you feel that any effort at all is required, or is it actually contraindicated? Well, I will speak from my own experience, so I don't know for certain. I do know that I tried my ass off for the first 10 years of my own practice, and I don't know if that was helpful or not. It certainly helped me see what effort feels like and how painful that was compared to non-effort when I was starting to find the conditions as compared to trying to force the conditions. But I am yet to be convinced that effort is actually required. You know, there's this right effort that's described in the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, and I know that well enough, and I don't know that I'm not a scholar, poly-scholar, so I don't know how those are interpreted and, and in what context that was used, and I think the context is really important. I don't think it's a brute force effort. That's my guess around how these are described, but again, I'm not the expert here. So my hedged view, I'll, I'll hedge this and say I'm happy to be wrong, I am yet to find where effort in terms of a contracted forced uh, concentration is actually required. So interesting. The effort versus non-effort schools have been at war since the beginning of time. Newsflash, the current neuroscience seems to land in the no effort spot. <laughs> 
yes, we'll see. I mean, it really requires a, a rigorous controlled experiment around that. And again, I would start with defining terms very carefully. And I'm not interested in getting in the middle of the debate in the effort versus no effort schools. And I also learned this from my wife, who's a Bible scholar and studies the political landscape and the, the history around major documents. I'm going to maybe sound controversial, but that is actually as important as the documents themselves for us to understand the documents. And I think there's no exception for these. You mean the controversy around the document? Well, just in understanding any historical document, you have to understand to whom it was taught, what the language is, what the terms actually mean. We can't just do a one-to-one translation and say, oh, it said effort, therefore I should effort. That's probably not so helpful. Okay, so let's just get more controversial. What you're discovering in the PCC, what is it? I was sort of uh, goading you at the beginning saying you've discovered the neurocorrelates of awakening. What would you say you've discovered? I have no idea, to be honest, in the grand universal scheme of things, you know, relative to glaciers melting and things like that. We've probably learned something useful. It seems to be useful for the folks that were testing with this. I think of this more as a mental mirror that helps us really see clearly what it feels like to get caught up in experience because our minds are very easily fooled. And more importantly, they are very good at fooling themselves. So for example, if we've been conditioned that excitement is the highest level of happiness, you know, excitement's a great one because it leads to this restless contraction that often people, especially novices, don't see. You know, when I ask them, what does fear feel like contracted or expanded? And they say contracted. And then I say, what does joy feel like? And they say expanded. And I say, what does excitement feel like? And, you know, about 50% of the time, folks that really haven't paid attention to this carefully, they'll say expanded versus contracted. And then when they really look at their experience, I haven't found a single person to say that excitement, especially relative to things like joy, is expanded. So I think it can give a level of nuance and a level of non-subjective feedback that can really help wake people up in terms of helping them to look at their own experience very carefully and then see, does this actually feel better than something else uh, on a very, very basic level? So I think of it more as a, a pointing us in the direction. It's more of a compass rather than like some absolute measure that's going to say, okay, once you hit this bar, now you've reached the definition of enlightenment, for example. If you want to draw a line, you need two points. And if you think of whether we're moving in the direction of more suffering or less suffering, all you need is a previous moment and your current moment, and you can compare the two. You can say, is this more contracted or less contracted? And you can look at the outcomes. Has this led to more harm or less harm? And so in this sense, I think these types of feedback tools, especially with the posterior cingulate, can help us see, are we pointing ourselves in the right direction or the wrong direction so that we can learn from it? I really see this as a learning tool. What did you learn when you stuffed some super awake people in the tube? That they were super awake. (laughs) So it did uh, hear in the actual readout of the device that something different was going on with their PCC, at least. Yeah, we could have, and we've had a number of people in different traditions come in. They'll just drop deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and we just watch the graph go down, 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 down. Okay, so even though you're hedging and being modest, that is a pretty startling result. 
let's just say we were happy to see that in very experienced meditators that it was confirming what our scientific studies were showing with pretty experienced versus novice meditators. It's really amazing because you can learn so much from that where you say, okay, what happened then? What happened then? We had a Rinpoche come into the lab recently, and he'd been really focused on mantra type of work. And we had him do a silent mantra, and that kind of showed a relative decrease in PCC activity. Then he did it verbally, and the PCC activity, or at least the readout, went up, which may have indicated a little bit of muscle artifact. So in this case, we're using EEG neurofeedback uh, from that brain region. But then the thing just took a nosedive. And we asked him, well, what did you do? And he said, I took all of these and just collapsed them into non-duality and just tanked. You know, it just went really far down. So it's nice to see across different traditions and also different practices where we can see this convergence happening, whether it's breath awareness or whether it's a mantra or whether it's a collapsing into a non-dual state. What's the weirdest thing you've seen in there? There are a couple of surprising things that just come to mind immediately. One is that the novices, in just a couple of cases, so this was a small percentage, but in a couple of cases, some of these novices were able to flip their brain activity like 180 degrees, and that was just mind-blowing to us. That was actually the clue that we could actually use this for neurofeedback because they were coming out of there saying that there was something profound had happened. And we've had that happen with experienced meditators as well. <laughs> One guy came in, and we were supposed to have lunch afterwards. And he basically, you know, he was just like in a daze. And he wrote me an email the next day saying that was so profound. I really couldn't talk afterwards. Um, so that's nice to see. We've also seen some very experienced meditators come in who reported high attainments. And, you know, their brain activity was interesting in the sense that it was not consistent with what our other experienced meditators had shown and what our studies had shown. And again, we do a lot of these things blinded so that we can really make sure that they're not fooling themselves. Uh, it was interesting because this was somebody who had been very blatant about his attainments. And a lot of the people that come into our lab aren't wearing those on their sleeves as much. Interesting. So the person who was the most uh, forward about how awake they were actually appeared in the device to be not so awake. I think forward can be interpreted many ways. <laughs> okay. I meant bragging. <laughs> In that case, yes. What do you want to see happen with this? I mean, is this the enlightenment meter that we're going to go around testing gurus with? Or what do you see as being the cool, helpful, useful, most sparkly, visionary use of such technology? I can just see classic meditators just hating this. <laughs> we've certainly had a lot of pushback and i like to say well we're just following the data this you know, if i get attached to any of these views then point it out because that's going to just cause suffering it's very nice to be able to just step back and ask well what's actually happening and really be a scientist here uh, so that piece has been really nice in answering your question i would say i think i'm a clinician you know and I think there's a lot of suffering in this world. I certainly see it in my addiction clinic uh, every week. And here, I would say on a population health level, if we could even use this as a way to help novices learn what contraction versus expansion feels like as they begin a meditation practice, it might change the trajectory of their practice significantly. You know, the, I love the Vince Lombardi quote, this Green Bay Packers coach from the 50s, 
he said, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And if we can train novices to practice perfectly or more perfectly from the beginning, I think that could make a huge difference. So I could see this being used, and we're actually doing a study now as people go through our MBSR program at the Center for Mindfulness, they start getting neurofeedback in this study in week three, right when they're starting to learn meditation practice. So I could see it being used there. But also, because this is relative change in the brain, it's not like you're going to top it out or bottom it out at some point. I think experienced meditators can play with it as well, as we've found, and find one it either confirms some of the practices that they're doing or might even point out areas where they want to explore a bit more. So here I could see it being used broad spectrum from novices to you know relatively experienced meditators. I think folks that are kicking it already, it wouldn't be that helpful. It might just confirm what they already know, which in their own experience is going to be a much stronger feedback and driving force probably than any neurofeedback machine. Well, having been in your device myself, I was noticing afterwards how much of a clearer idea it gave me of exactly the spot. Previous to that, I think it had been a little more, I don't know how to describe it, but like an area, like, okay, that's the right direction and to go into a deep place. But after working with your device, it was like, no, it's not an area. It's right there. That's the spot. Like a sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. So for the record, you weren't the guy that came in bragging about your attainments, (laughs) just in case anybody was wondering. Okay. So I don't hear you saying, yeah, this is the enlightenment machine. All you got to do is put yourself on this, hook up to the electrodes and you'll be a, you know, Rinpoche next week. You're talking about something that might help people to advance more quickly, even if they're using otherwise completely traditional methods. This is just an adjunct type method, at least currently. Yeah, the image, and this might not be the perfect analogy, but the analogy that comes to mind is like putting a turbocharger on your engine. So your engine, without an engine, a turbocharger doesn't do jack. Uh, And it's not to say that this is going to turbocharge somebody toward enlightenment, but it might help the engine run faster or something that makes the engine more efficient perhaps would be a better analogy. Absolutely, the engine is the engine. And you can think of awareness and the attitudinal qualities that come with awareness as the engine and the body, you know, and our own direct experience as the feedback. And this device can come in, you know, that's the engine. And these types of devices can come in and help tweak those a little bit, but they're not going to fundamentally build an engine for us. Well, you are someone who meditates quite a bit and believes in the practice and has been doing it a long, long time. How often are you actually using this device to help yourself zero in on improving your practice? I don't use it very much. My body and my experience, one, they're always available. And two, uh, now I have a pretty clear sense of what contraction versus expansion feels like you know, every moment that I can wake up and notice contraction versus expansion, uh, it's helpful. I'm certainly not claiming anything, but I feel like I have enough of a sense of what contraction versus expansion feels like that the feedback that we've developed thus far isn't going to add to that at this point. Excellent. So that tells us a lot. It's like really good at a certain point, And at least for now, that's good enough. Okay, so it's really fascinating to me that you keep using this contraction versus expansion language and that that's what this device is teaching or able to point out. 
And can you just tell me more about that? I'd be happy to. As we started doing these neurophenomenologic studies and really starting to find this language around effort versus non-effort, that our science was lining up with these ancient traditions who were talking about non-efforting, I was very interested and started looking at reward-based learning from a very practical level. So as an addiction psychiatrist, you know, I'm trying to understand how my patients' minds work and how we can help them overcome really devastating addictions. And the language I found was lining up pretty remarkably well with, uh, even if you bring it back to these factors of awakening. And I wrote a paper with my friend Jake Davis and my teacher Joseph Goldstein on this around the factors of awakening and reward-based learning. And if you basically think about bringing awareness and curiosity and interest together, the natural results of that, think of the third factor as virya or courageous energy, and the fourth being PT, which can be translated as rapture or even joy. There's a feedback loop that gets established there. Let me back up and just talk about how our brains work, which is this very basic process, reward-based learning, operant conditioning, positive and negative reinforcement. This stuff's been known forever. And the three basic elements are you need a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So let's say that somebody gets stressed that's the trigger. The behavior is that they smoke a cigarette or eat a cupcake. That's the behavior. And then the reward is that they feel a little bit better. And that usually has to do with some dopamine hit. Well, you can actually tap into that same system with the trigger being stress, for example, the behavior being bringing a kind, curious awareness to that situation. And then the reward being the joy that comes from letting go, from not getting caught up. So if you think of contraction versus expansion, we can take the same reward-based learning process and we can hack it in, in essence where we substitute the behavior of awareness, so being, rather than doing something, which also moves the behavior and the reward internally or intrinsically because those are always available as compared to cupcakes, which we have to buy, or cigarettes, etc. So we've got this internal behavior with an internally driven reward that's always available. So that piece is where we started linking up this contraction versus expansion because, you know, for example, letting go, does letting go feel contracted or expanded? Yeah, absolutely. And now if you look at how the brain works, it's a perpetual Skinner box, as they say. So B.F. Skinner was this behaviorist that became famous in the 50s and apparently went a little overboard. And so some people think he went nuts where he was saying everything is behaviorism in the 70s, so he kind of fell out of favor. But if you look at his basic tenets, which is you know where operant conditioning came from, you know reward-based learning is based on rewards. So our brain is always looking for something that's better. And so if the highest level of happiness comes, for example, with excitement, that's actually a contracted feeling. If suddenly we introduce a reproducible behavior that gives a reward that is nicer, that feels better, expansion, for example, that comes with the joy of letting go, suddenly our brain starts inclining itself in that direction. That's the Skinner box. The Skinner box classically is you have a rat and you have two different colored chambers and you shock it in one chamber and it learns to prefer the other chamber. So here, our brains are going to naturally learn to avoid that quote-unquote shock, which is the excitement or the fear or the anger, you know. And so we can start to learn about even self-righteous anger. You know, how does self-righteous anger feel compared to the joy of kindness? And so our minds start inclining in that direction. That got me really interested in, can we actually use this process to help people with major behavior change, such as addiction? 
Wow. So what you're talking about is rewiring. I'm just going to talk up here Shenzhenese for a moment. Rewiring the circuits of the brain at a very deep level so that instead of feeling good when they contract, they feel good when they expand. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I understand how totally poetic that language is, but... It'll work. Okay, good. So what did you find when you started pointing this at addiction extinction? Well, the first studies we did were with alcohol and cocaine dependence, and we found that you know our treatments were as good as gold standard treatment. And then I applied this to the hardest addiction of all to quit, which generally doesn't make it into the movies because it's not as glamorous, uh, smoking. Uh, it actually is considered glamorous in the movies generally, which is problematic in itself, but we can place that off to the side. I, <laughs> we started and we went back to the suttas and we said, well, what is this phrase about exploring gratification to its end? What does this actually mean? And I didn't really do this literally because I had been exploring this in my own experience and I had been learning a few things and I wanted to see if it actually applied to addiction. So you can think of this as rubbing somebody's face in their behavior. And if the behavior is kind of crappy, they might notice that it starts to smell worse than they thought. So you're talking about taking the behavior, allowing the person to do it. So not abstinence, but actually, okay, go ahead and smoke. But then actually meditating on how gross it is. Not even meditating, but simply paying attention. Okay. Obviously, meditation is promoting attention, but I would say forget the word meditation, just pay attention. (laughs) Right. So for example, how the smoke smells or feels on your tongue or whatever. Yes. And uniformly people wake up like they've been in a trance for the last 40 years and say, how did I not notice that before? Because cigarettes don't taste very good. They just don't. (laughs) So, okay. So you've got these decades long smokers suddenly noticing what it feels like to smoke. Yes. And that is the beginning of the end for them because they start to become disenchanted with their behavior, especially when they really pay attention. They get a big hit, literally, of what it tastes like to smoke. Every time they smoke in the future, unless they totally stick their head under water and completely ignore it, that's going to be in there. And they're going to be like, wow, this isn't really that great. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? So that disenchantment piece, you know, if you go back to the suttas, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. I'm paraphrasing. But it's basically saying, really pay attention to your behavior and see how rewarding it actually is. And smoking, for example, is not that rewarding. Just for the listeners and for my edification, describe in detail paying attention to a behavior. Let's say uh, eating for example, so eating my breakfast this morning, <laughs> it's funny because I, I got too many eggs and I was noticing this habit around, oh, I really need to not waste food. And yet I wasn't as hungry as I thought I was when I got my plate served to me. And so I started really paying attention <laughs> as I was kind of forcing the last of my eggs down <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> and it really did not feel very good. So I was paying attention to what they look like. I was paying attention to the texture. I was paying attention to the taste. And in particular, I was paying attention to my stomach that was screaming at me saying, come on, you know, I don't care about those kids in Africa. And my mind does care you know, like about food waste. And so I was overriding that natural inclination that was saying, this is painful. Right. Stop eating now. Yes. 
you're describing paying attention to the body sensations, the emotion, the thoughts, all of that around the experience. So some pretty comprehensive mindfulness type practice on the experience. Every bit of it. I can remember the thoughts. I can remember feeling guilty. I can remember judging myself. But more importantly, just being able to notice all of those things, I learned something. And I remember thinking, okay, (laughs) next time you go for food, you can come back for seconds. Let's be a little more careful. Let's pay a little more attention. And that actually changed my behavior. So that lack of a reward helped me learn something. That's what reward-based learning is all about. It's about learning. Oh, oh, what did you get from that? What was the cause and effect? The cause was I got too many eggs. The effect was I had to force myself to eat because I had this concept that I really shouldn't waste food and it didn't feel very good. I learned something from that. Yeah, I'm curious if you kept doing that, would you remove all joy of eating from your life? Au contraire, (laughs) quite the opposite. When I pay attention when I eat, even in food that's not that great, Paying attention when eating is so much nicer than not paying attention. I feel so much more joyful when I eat now than I can remember before I started this practice. So I would say it's quite the opposite. I feel like there's much more joy, not just in eating, but in many other aspects of life. Yeah, that's my experience too. So it's interesting because what this is suggesting is it's not somehow extinguishing all enjoyment but just pointing out the inherent non-enjoyable properties of certain destructive behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are some suttas that talk about this. You know, it's like we're holding a hot coal and we thought that that hot coal was warming us up, but when we really pay attention to it, we realize that our hand is burning. And so we don't have to think about what to do. Oh, maybe I should drop this as we smell the sizzle. Uh, we naturally just drop the coal. It's effortless. It's selfless. And I think that's what these awareness practices help us do. They not only help us pay attention and see more clearly and be more efficient at letting go of these unhelpful behaviors, but they also help us groove those that are more skillful more often. It's like, you know, we're grooving that pathway of joy of that, what do the French say, joie de vivre, you know, that joy of life. What does this have to do if anything, with the PCC. Here's where we can link up the reward-based learning process. And, you know, we're doing some studies on this now, and I think others are starting to link this as well. The reward, on a very basic level, so PCC activities correlated with contraction when it's increased in activity, and it's correlated with expansion when there's decreased activity in that brain region. So when the PCC is activated, that's correlated with contraction. And when the PCC is deactivated, it's correlated with expansion. So on a very basic level, it's kind of a neural marker and a readout for contraction versus expansion in our direct experience. So now we can link these up with reward-based learning. We can start to notice how contraction is actually more painful than expansion, Okay, And then the next step is to see, well, what practices and what behaviors are correlated with contraction. So, for example, when I'm yelling at somebody and I'm all contracted, that lines up with PCC activity getting increased. And when I'm kind or letting go or not caught up in some argument with somebody, that feels better and also lines up with PCC activity going down. So I think that's how all of that lines up from a very basic neurobiologic level all the way to the behavioral experiential level. So can we make a simple equation where reduced PCC activity 
is not only going to move us in the direction of, let's say, no self type activity, but also in the direction of being able to let go of negative behaviors and experiences. Absolutely. When we see how painful they are, we naturally let go. And we actually have real data on this now. So for example, we've been developing these digital therapeutics as a way to provide a structured training that will pair with neurofeedback down the road, but can even work on their own. We just had a paper accepted for publication around this Eat Right Now program, where it's this app-based mindfulness training for helping people with stress and emotional eating. And what we started with was rubbing their faces in their behaviors, like pay attention when you overeat, pay attention when you eat when you're stressed or bored. And it helps them start to become disenchanted with the behavior, and then we can train them in basic mindful awareness so that they can ride out those cravings. Well, in fact, we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating in our first study. So we can see this really translate into major behavior change uh, through simple things like app-based training. And again, these people aren't sitting down and doing a 12-week course in meditation in a monastery. It's actually quite the opposite. What we found with our first smoking studies when we looked at the correlations was that the formal practices were correlated with outcomes and the informal practices on the fly were correlated with outcomes, but the informal practices were stronger. So when somebody practiced in the moment, riding out a craving, recognizing it and allowing it to be there and getting curious about it, that correlated more with outcomes than formal practices. So we looked at those data and we basically followed the data and said, well, if these informal practices for beginners are more strongly correlated, let's start there. Let's draw them in through that doorway so they can see real results and then bring in the formal practices to support those uh, as compared to the other way around, which is the way I learned it. You know, just sit down and meditate. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. If they can understand how their minds work, then they can start to have the concepts that fit with their own behavior and then see how the formal practices support this ability to let go. And then they might even be motivated to do these practices in the first place. And so we've had the really good success with this Eat Right Now program. We've even extended this to anxiety, which is even more complex than eating. You know, smoking's relatively straightforward because you don't have to smoke to survive. Eating's a little more complicated because we do have to eat. So how we work with problematic eating gets trickier. Anxiety is even trickier than those two of them. So how is anxiety trickier? Well, there are habit loops around anxiety. You know, if you think of the trigger behavior reward, if we get triggered by something and we feel anxious and then we, our behavior is to distract ourselves, like going on our phones or checking our email or whatever, then the behavior is we feel a little bit better because we've distracted ourselves. So that's one habit loop that we can train people with anxiety around. But people with deep-seated anxiety, which often have a genetic component and other conditioned components, there's that habit loop spirals out of control. So they get stressed, and then they have formed some automatic behavior around trying to fix the problem. So they start thinking, oh, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? Or how am I going to solve this? Or is this going to work out? They go over the event horizon into the black hole of anxiety and they get sucked in (laughs) and they wind up into this tight little ball of anxiety. So that habit loop spirals out of control just because some behavior that might have helped them in the past, oh, thinking through a problem, is actually getting caught up in the anxiety itself. So that's where it gets much more complex and nuanced. And what do you suggest they do? (laughs) Pay attention. (laughs) Pay attention to the discomfort of the anxiety or... 
Yeah, there are a number of ways that we've done this. And you know, it's been very interesting as we've developed this new digital therapeutic called Unwinding Anxiety. We've started with the factors of awakening. So can we actually draw them in, in any moment, to what anxiety feels like, okay? And they know what anxiety feels like. They want to run away from it as quickly as possible. So the key here is how can we help them stay even for a moment? And so we draw them in through curiosity practices. Okay, do you feel here? Do you feel it here? Is it more on your right side? Is it more on your left side? Not as a way to kind of rub their face in the anxiety, but as a way to notice when they actually foster a little bit of curiosity, that anxiety is not as bad as it was a moment before. That gives them a tremendous amount of hope. Oh, I can do something about this. And then we bring in other awareness practices where eventually we train them to ride out their urges to do something about anxiety, which is tremendously helpful in the folks that have gone through our program so far. They've reported that. But even being able to use practices like simply breathing into their anxiety, which helps them be with it rather than run away from it. So your model of working with addiction has this interesting component of not promoting abstinence. And I assume that's somewhat controversial. There's certainly controversy in the addictions. These seem to be two camps around harm reduction versus complete abstinence. Here I take a brain-centered approach, which is how do we learn, what do we know about the brain, and how can we use all this information to help people? What we do know is that the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's used for cognitive control, which is often used, especially with people that don't have a lot of meditation experience, they use their prefrontal cortex to force themselves to abstain. What we do know about the prefrontal cortex, because it's the youngest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective, is that it's the first to go offline when we get stressed, which probably not coincidentally is the reason that stress is one of the biggest predictors of relapse. So we get stressed, prefrontal cortex goes offline, and then we relapse. So we really can't trust it. It's not a trustworthy resource. And this may be why cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't have as great numbers in terms of relapse prevention as I think everybody in the field would like to see. So that information is really helpful. I haven't really taken that approach because you know a lot of other people have been researching it and I think the, the data are pretty clear in this front. Where I have looked is to say, well, how can we actually hack this system? And I've also worked with a bunch of patients and it's really helpful to really get their perspectives on where they're struggling and what's realistic. And the only thing that's really realistic is to work with them where they're at. And often, you know, they're struggling to find housing and to find a job and whatnot. And so adding another stressor, which is to force themselves to abstain, uh, can be even more stressful for them. So I try to meet them where they're at. And there, it's a matter of, well, if you're going to drink, you can pay attention to the results of that. What do you get after you went on an all-night bender? You know, how's the car look? Have you lost your license? Have you gotten a fight with your significant other? Have you lost your job? Those are extreme pieces, but they can even look at the simple things like, well, I feel pretty crappy when I have a hangover and I feel guilty and my wallet's much lighter because, you know, buying alcohol at the bar is expensive. And so they can look at those real results and really ask themselves, what do I get from this? And there, that's a very practical and actionable thing because they've already had those drinks or they've already smoked that cigarette or they've already, you know, gone on that three-day cocaine binge. From there, we can work with that. We can work with that on a daily basis and they don't come back into my office 
feeling guilty or lying about their behavior. They know that we can be honest with each other and we can say, okay, what did you learn from that? Where can we go from here? So we can bow to these things as teachers rather than beating ourselves up over having failed. It's, it's very different, very empowering. And that empowering piece is really important because people with addictions beat themselves up all the time, and they also get the beat down from society. It's really seen as something that's shameful. And so from the brain-based perspective, do you see addiction as a, quote, disease, or is it more of a learned behavior? <laughs> is being human a disease? <laughs> well... <laughs> So in this sense, it's really on the spectrum of learned behavior. And so, yes, there are genetic components that can predispose someone. So you could think of that in terms of the disease model. And yes, this is how our brain learns. It was based on remembering where food is and avoiding danger. So that's not as much a disease as a survival mechanism. So, you know, you bring together a survival mechanism with modern day where we can distill alcohol and we can make drugs readily available. And of course, we're going to run into problems like addiction. So I don't think of it as one or the other. I really think of it as, well, this is how our minds work. And here are the genetic predispositions that can predispose us to addiction. And yes, you can look at it as a disease and you can also look at it as just being human. You've got a new book out. Can you tell me something about that? <laughs> you want me to be self-referential? <laughs> <laughs> Let's light up that PCC. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, I'll say a little because it's actually not that fun to talk about myself. You know, after about 20 years of all this work, my own practice, my work in the lab, and also my addiction clinic, there was this thing that really felt like it needed to be born. And so actually I did this as part of a self-meditation retreat. I said, sit, walk, write, and I'll only write when I'm basically in flow and I'll just see what comes out. And to be accurate, I wrote the introduction and maybe one of the chapters before I went on retreat to make sure I needed the okay from my editor that I actually knew how to write a book because I'd never written a book. And she said, yeah, this is good. So go for it. And I basically let a lot of what we're talking about come out on paper or on my laptop. And over the course of two weeks, this book basically wrote itself. Does it have a title? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to brag, like, look, this book wrote itself. I'm just saying those are the conditions. The title of the book, I guess, if somebody wants to know, is called The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How, how We Can Break Bad Habits. Would you say that self-referential thinking is a kind of addiction? <laughs> yes, I would say it is. And there's some pretty good data behind that. Can you talk more about it? There was a study that came out 2016 around Instagram. Some researchers at UCLA took adolescents and put them in their fMRI scanner and showed them their own Instagram feeds. And the only thing they manipulated from picture to picture was how many likes those pictures got, which was completely arbitrarily determined by the experimenters. It's not real. Their pictures are real, but the likes were not real. They could even mathematically determine how many likes they got. It wasn't that the researchers were sitting there going, oh, that's a great picture. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> it's randomized. It's randomized, absolutely. And what they found was that in the comparison conditions of 
more likes versus fewer likes, the nucleus accumbens of these adolescents' brains was activated, which is the downstream of the reward pathway where dopamine gets spritzed coming from the tegmental area. So basically, this brain region gets activated with every single known drug of abuse and also with Instagram. (laughs) So related to that, they also activated their posterior cingulate cortex. So here's this link between this addictive behavior or reward-based learning, if you want to think of it that way, and self-reference. There's a direct link right there. And so would you recommend that people who, let's say, want to have less self-referential thinking actually meditate on the unpleasant aspects of self-reference? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, ask yourself, what do I get from this? When I talk too much at a party... What does that feel like when I have to tell people how great I am? I'm using extreme examples. What does that feel like when I'm constantly thinking about myself? How connected am I with the person that I'm having a conversation with? All of these are things that we can directly pay attention to, whether we're meditating or whether we're right in the moment with somebody else, noticing that we're thinking about ourselves rather than truly connected with the person with whom we're having a conversation. Bringing this around to a close, I'm curious if you have any other tidbits of wisdom here, like meditation from the lab. (laughs) Here I would say the contraction versus expansion piece has really been enlightening, ha ha ha, for me, uh, both in terms of my own practice, but also in terms of how we develop programs for not only novices, but medium and experienced meditators. I have found with my own students that that expansion versus contraction piece is tremendously helpful no matter what somebody's practice is. So that's one tidbit that we've learned from the lab is that. And also uh, having the theoretical framework of reward-based learning has been really helpful, not only in developing our digital therapeutics, whether it's you know smoking or stress eating or anxiety, but also in lining these up with the theoretical concepts and the models that have been around for thousands of years. You know, dependent origination, which has been around before paper was even invented, you know, it basically describes operant conditioning, or more accurately, I would say operant conditioning describes dependent origination. And we even wrote a peer-reviewed paper showing the parallels between these. So I would say that's another piece from the lab that we've learned that's really tremendously reassuring in terms of the work that we do, where we see that, one, we're not coming up with new theories or new models that we have to defend. We're just basically testing these old theories and seeing if they match up with modern-day science. And in fact, they're matching up perfectly. I've not seen any mismatches yet. Uh, So that piece is really nice to see. I don't have to defend anything. I can just purely put on my scientific hat or my lab coat and say, let's figure out what's real. Have you been testing any cities? So define that for myself and your audience. I'm teasing you a little bit. In the early suttas, there's a lot of magical powers. (laughs) We have not been doing that, no. I've heard a number of differing views on those, ranging from whether this is a description of lucid dreaming to actual reality. And this is where I think understanding the historical context is really, really important. So what are these magical powers? How are they described? How are they used in the teachings? Are they real? That's also a controversy that I love to be the fly on the wall, but not necessarily embroiled in. So let's wind this down then. Thanks a lot, Judd, for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
that's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>